This morning, we're in 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 16. Next week, I'll finish this chapter, 17 through 21. So today, I'm going to spend part of the time, we'll cover these three verses, and then I'm going to go to extensive applications in Luke. I've been wanting to do this the whole time. I've been preaching in this section. I need to get into Luke because that's where it really brings out the status, honor, and the debate. So let me start the timer here. I'll read the text and we'll pray and we'll go to the second slide. The whole text is there. I'm not writing these things to shame you, but admonishing you as my dear children. For if you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I fathered you through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. That's Paul writing to the Corinthians. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness that you allowed us to see these simple but life-changing, profound truths about what you've done and who you are, why we need you, and why we should listen to you. Thank you, Lord, and I pray for wisdom and understanding that these things could be taught so that people can hear and believe and give us grace to live accordingly. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's the text. I highlighted admonishing and exhortation, and we'll see in a one of, I have a future slide showing this in a big bracket. The bracket goes back into chapter 1, and now we'll get to the end of it, and then we'll fill in what the key issue was. Let's go to verse 14. I am not writing these things to shame you, but admonishing you as my dear children. Interestingly to me, the issue throughout is shame and honor. And the ancient culture, especially in the ancient Near East and also in the Roman culture, the, the two key things that were important had to be whether you were honored and important in that way or shamed, which you wanted to avoid. It was a shameful honor culture. And so Paul, writing to the Christians at Corinth was saying, I'm not writing to shame you. Really, he's writing to get them back to what is indeed honorable, which is rejoicing that they're in Christ through the gospel and not comparing themselves to each other, trying to see who's the greatest. That's what we'll be talking about. Now, this is an analogy, okay? Admonishing you as my dear children. It's really sad, frankly, that later church history, particularly recent church history, things have been made uh, from this to turn into some sort of a counseling or psychological theory. People had bad parenting, so they need now new spiritual reparenting. No, that won't help you. I would not listen to that. What we need to know is whether Christ accepts us into his family by his grace and whether we know God the Father through the Son, not what sort of psychological problems we may or may not have. 
I'll, at the end, we'll talk about Adam and Christ. We all have one problem in, in common. We were born dead sinners in Adam. That's universal. That will help us if we understand that because there's a way out, and that's only through Christ. So he's admonishing those who came to Christ through his ministry, an apostle appointed by Christ, and he was in Corinth, as we see in Acts 18, 1 through 11, and he spent 18 months there. In Corinth, we have Quilla and Priscilla who came, and he was reasoning in the synagogue. Timothy came there. I'll mention something about Timothy next week. And uh, the Lord himself told Paul, I have many people in this city. Paul didn't know at that point who they were until he stayed and kept teaching and preaching. Those who are the Lord's will respond to the gospel. So the admonishment concerns boasting and factions. Now, later, I'll I'll show you how this is a big bracket that covers the material that we've already seen in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, and now 4. They had factions. They were arguing. They were saying, I know something you don't know. I have gifts that are better than you. I don't need you. I do need you. This is not correct. This is not what God wants. Now, in one, for example, 1 Corinthians 1, 11 and 12, Paul said this, For it has been made clear to me concerning you, my brothers, my Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. For verse 12, but I say this, that each of you is saying, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Cephas, I'm with Christ, and he rebukes them. That Christ is in one faction. Everyone who knows God through Christ is in Christ. So I want to make a statement about this. Paul writes to redefine what is shameful or honorable as the case may be. The honored what is dishonorable and shamed what is honorable. And when I first understood this shame-honor situation, uh, this just shows my background. I was a student at Iowa State University in the late, from 69 to 70, 71, I became a Christian. If you want a good example of honoring what's shameful, look at college students in their frats and sororities and whatever. And many times, young people will go off to college and start taking whatever their parents told them not to do and say, this is our honor. We are going to be more wicked than somebody else. And we're proud of it. And a whole genre of, of literature movies rose from that. Now, we realize, hopefully we grow up and mature. Not everybody does. But we don't want to be those who honor the shameful and dishonor what God honors. And what's truly honorable is to honor God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and trusting him. What's honorable is defined in the Bible, not in the pagan culture. Dr. Thistleton, uh, who's really a, 
uh, been helpful to me as I've been studying 1 Corinthians says this. The Corinthians were competing for status. Paul does not wish simply to remove all status, but to redefine what counts as status in terms of glorying in the cross, glorying in the Lord, and perceiving slavery, which meaning being a dishonored servant of Christ, as salvation. The honoring of being accounted worthy to suffer hardships in the service of their Lord. The fact is that anywhere in the world, in any era of history, since the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost, the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified is considered shameful and abhorrent to sinners. Lots of different kinds of sinners in the world, lots of different kinds of religions and cultures, but none of them are looking for a crucified Jewish Messiah. But that's the gospel of salvation. So in his wisdom, God has commanded that preachers and all of us proclaim Christ crucified. That means that those who believe are going to be rescued from being lost and bound by sin and death and given eternal life and forgiveness of sin. Now let's go to verse 15. Paul, in his analogy, continues, For if you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I fathered you through the gospel. I want to point out, this is unusual terminology, but it's an analogy. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul believed that every father that ever existed was a great father. Far from the case. Nor does he believe some modern psychological theory. Obviously not. He's simply saying, by analogy... A father typically cares about the child. And in this case, Paul had come, preached Christ, who stood mocking and difficulties and sufferings, and in Corinth, he stayed there a year and a half and taught them Christ and the gospel. And in that regard, as the apostle, he taught them the truth. There are a lot of others coming around who are saying, well... Don't listen to Paul. We got a better idea about how you'll be a good Christian. But Paul was the one who brought the gospel to them. The term guardian, uh, pedagogos, we have a word pedagogy, or it would mean like a trainer of children and or a tutor. And there's a logical construction here if you have guardians yet or but you do not have many fathers. The conclusion is they should listen to the one God sent to them to bring them to gospel. I see this happen, by the way. People come to Christ, and it's particularly true now that there's a lot of remote uh, people that hear us and, and come to Christ. I've heard from many from different places, including around the world. But every once in a while, somebody 
rejoices that they came to Christ. And it, it doesn't take long for the false teachers to swoop in, say, oh, you didn't get it right. You need, and then they have some little idea that they grab them, say, you have to be here and listen only to us. Similar things going on here. The truth of the gospel is revealed in Scripture, and the Scripture is given to us by Holy Spirit-inspired authors who spoke for God. Don't let someone come along and say, no, we have something that nobody else ever figured out. It's not the case. It will harm you. We need to preach what's been given to the whole church by Christ and his apostles and not make some exclusive claim. But yet, some were doing that. And so, Paul's concern about their integrity in Christ and false teachers, as we will see when we get to chapter 5, we're going to deal with a lot of really bad ideas that were coming to that church. They're being pulled in bad directions. Let's go to verse 16. Therefore, I exhort you, become imitators of me. Now, again, we got to put this in context. Because Paul already warned them that some were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter. So he's not trying to start a Paul sect. He's appealing to them to live the sort of life that's centered on the gospel, that bears fruit, that's concerned about the integrity of the truth, the well-being of the church, and Christ and him crucified, and not gaining some other status. And so that's the context. Last time I preached, we looked at 1 Corinthians 4, 11 through 13. They were hungry and thirsty, working with his hands. He was a tent maker with Aquila and Priscilla when he was in Corinth and didn't do anything that would enhance his status in the world as a traveling preacher. He was uh, deemed unfavorably by people who didn't listen to the gospel. And that was compared to them being kings, rich, reigning, and so on. I preached on that earlier. Now, the term exhort here, I have it in red on the slide, is, uh, I believe, a bracket, or sometimes uh, technically they call it inclusio. Here's the beginning, here's the end. Everything in between is the topic. And so I'll have a slide there, and if you're looking at your handouts, you'll see it. We'll have the next slide, we'll point that out, that everything in between that we've been covering, those who are claiming to be spiritual but weren't, those who claimed higher status, those who claimed wisdom, those who claimed this and that, they would put them in some stead greater than anybody else around. That's the problem. That's what's being refuted. And to claim superior status in a shame-honor world as a Christian, saying I have a better status than other Christians, not to mention everybody else out there, shows worldly thinking, carnal-mindedness, 
and a lack of comprehension about the true claims of the gospel. And the fact is, the truth of Christ crucified will humble us if we take it seriously. It will make us grateful if we take it seriously. It will make us appreciative of other brothers and sisters in Christ because they are the ones that we need. We need one another because the world will hate us. One of the worst things that has been developed through modern ability to uh, do polling and finding out who wants what is the seeker church. We want a Christianity that makes it be honorable to everybody, whether they ever know Christ or not. We want to be big. We want to have status. Come, and you'll be somebody important. That's antithetical of Paul's teaching. If we preach Christ crucified, and people are convicted, and they come to Christ, what they gain is forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And a part of the family of God, the body of Christ. And we don't know who's better than somebody else in the body. That's to be determined later by God. That was in, earlier in First Corinthians. So that's the bracket. Paul is like a father who has instructed his children proper behavior by his own example. Now we're going to find out in chapter 5 They didn't follow that example. Very, very shameful. So let's look at the bracketed material. I'm purposely leaving time to do a walk through uh, who's the greatest material in Luke. And I think, I hope you find it very beneficial. So going back to 1 Corinthians 1.10, which I preached on probably over a year ago. Now I exhort you, brethren... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, what exactly is that? It's not mind control. It's not top-down authoritarianism. It's the fact that we are here because of what God did for us, not what we did for God. We're here not because we had something to offer, but because God gave us what we didn't deserve. Life, forgiveness of sins, relationship with Christ, and a hope for eternity, and people to walk out that hope with other brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's the first use of this term in the exact same form in the Greek, I exhort you. It comes up the next time in verse 16, which we just read. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Now, starting next week, I'll I'll start with verse 17, where he's sending Timothy because he's concerned to get this mess straightened out. And it's not easy to do. It's not easy to do. The tendency to go astray is just there pulling at everyone all the time. And the only thing that will get us back to where it should be, dead center, when we rebuilt engines, we had to get it to top dead center before you try to get it to start. 
if the valve timing be right. How do we get to top dead center? Scripture alone. Not signing an oath, making a pledge to a preacher, but Scripture alone. Every believer needs to be trained in the Word of God, given the tools for discernment, and given the opportunity to correct preachers if needs be, if we're not reading it correctly or paying attention. That's why this is so essential. So I want to make a statement, and then we'll go to our applications. The material between 110 and 416 concerns the key problem Paul is confronting in this beginning section of 1 Corinthians. He will soon deal with specific issues such as immorality, church discipline, and, by the way, eschatological errors and many other ones. We'll deal with them, which will be the topic of Chapter 5. Right away, Chapter 5, he deals with something going on that just shouldn't ever show up in a Christian fellowship. Now, let's go to some applications. Status rivalry leads to sectarian boasting, not ethical behavior. Okay, so that statement may say a lot. I hope I can uh, fill that out a little bit as we go through Luke. I am whatever. Let me give you an illustration before we get to the application. The first year I was a Christian, I was saved when I was a junior at Iowa State University, switched over to Bible college already. And so on weekends, I went back to campus, even though learning the Bible in Bible college, I was going back to Ames and witnessing to fellow students who had been students with me and going on campus preaching the gospel then go back to Bible college. And when we, one of the first times I was out there with another Christian preaching Christ, we, we ran into some others and we said, Hi, we're, we're Christians. And they said, we're navigators. So why would you say we're navigators? I don't know how good or bad navigators are, but navigator isn't exactly synonymous with the term Christian. So rather than explaining why they're there to talk about Christ, they're explaining what group they belong to. That's uh, endemic church history. New life through the gospel changes everything, and that's really what this is about. Now, let's go back here to Luke. I've been teaching in Luke-Acts for a long, long time, still in Acts. And I want to show you something. There'll be other verses. You're going to need to turn to Luke 9. You have a Bible with you, or if you do it on your computer, get into Luke 9. This material should really amaze and shock us. It's there by intention. Luke skillfully lays this out, and it highlights the very problem Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians later. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul's in part of these journeys. It's amazing how much similarity you see to Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians and some of the things Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. Let me give you the setting. Turn to Luke 9. Now, I have on the screen here 43 and 44. 
But I want to give you the setting for that. Where did, how did they get to this place where they're astonished at the majesty of God? Well, the key scene previous to this in Luke 9 was the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John went onto the mount with Jesus. And there, Jesus is transfigured so that they see the glory of the Savior. With him on the Mount of Transfiguration, before all this that we're looking at here, was Moses and Elijah. And in that experience, Peter, not knowing what he should say, says, let's build three tabernacles. Luke makes it clear that's a bad idea. They need to listen to him. So the Father from heaven, as Christ is transfigured, God the Son, the eternal creator, the virgin-born Son of God, the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. What's the significance? Well, Moses, we have Moses. Moses is a great prophet, but he's not the Son of God. He prophesied about Jesus. Elijah was a great prophet. Moses was a lawgiver. But the Son is uniquely God the Son. Listen to him. And so they saw his glory, Peter, James, and John. Keep that in mind. So they come down, the next day, there was a boy seriously demonized. The disciples had not been able to cast out the demon, but Jesus does. Go back further. In Luke 8, Jesus did miracles, walked on water, healed the man of the Gerasenes, who was the legion, demons, cemetery, unclean, pigs, everything bad. Jesus conquered it. He, he raises a dead girl, heals an issue of blood. All these things happen. Then they go on the Mount, chapter 9, they see this. And all of this was there, but they can't put that into action, showing that there's a way out of darkness. And so, in verse 43 and 44 here, let me read. And all were astonished. So Jesus does what they were unable to do. And all were astonished at the majesty of God, using a very important and unique term, the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, that reminds us of all these things that happened, showing the uniqueness of Christ, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men. What? Where did that come from? All of this majesty. Everything we saw, the miracles, the walking on water, the demoniac, who, by the way, was so cured instantly that when he wanted to be a disciple, follow Jesus, Jesus said, no, go tell your people the great thing God did for you. He was already to be a witness for Christ right then after having been chained up in a cemetery. The other things that happened, the Mount of Transfiguration, and so then there's this warning 
That's what that says. Let it sink into your ears. You got to listen. Son of man is a reference to Messiah from Daniel. It's about to be delivered in the hands of men. Now, why would he say that? Well, there was a hint for Peter, James, and John. There was a hint on the Mount Transfiguration. Because up there with Elijah and Moses, they were discussing his, literally, the the Greek, his exodus. There's going to be an exodus that he's going to accomplish, departure. And they don't get it. They don't get it. Luke 9.45, I'll read it. I don't have it on the slide. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so they may not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. We better not ask. Something's going on. We don't get it. Let's just not ask. They're afraid. Look at where this is going. Verses 46 to 48. So what would you do at that point? I know. Let's argue about who's the greatest. What else would you do? It's ironic. Luke wants to get our attention as he writes this. Whoa. Where'd that come from? It comes from what the problem is. Who wants a savior who's going to be delivered into the hands of men? We want a savior who destroys men. Let me show you. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, by the way, evidence for the deity of Christ, only God knows the heart, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, you all, is the one who is great. What did the child signify? Not whatever we might think about children, but what... What what was true about a child in that context? A child had no status. No status. It was dependent on everyone else. And you certainly weren't going to be the greatest if you were a child. And that's the point here. No status. I want to make a statement from my notes about this. This debate about greatness shows that they have missed the point of everything that has happened. The astonishment of the crowd at the majesty of God in the context of the Mount of Transfiguration, Messiah's power over the worst situations that anyone could encounter leads to an argument about who's the greatest. It makes no sense at all. If they don't know by now that they are sinners and that Christ is the greatest, they're missing something. Jesus corrects them by putting in front of them a child 
as an object lesson of someone in their world who had no status. To receive those with no status, as Jesus will do in many other cases in Luke, would show that they understand God's purpose in Jesus' rejection. But they do not, as soon will become evident. (laughs) By the way, it doesn't take long to go astray. In the midst of all of this, let me point something out here. Starting with uh, Luke 9.51 is the travel narrative in Luke. It's unbelievable. Holy Spirit-inspired gospel that goes all the way to a center point and then in reverse order back to his triumphal entry. And he said, let me read Luke 5.51. I hope you have your Bibles open. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Set his face means it's an analogy from an Old Testament prophet. This is where he's going. Nothing will stop him. But he's going to be crucified and rejected. And taken up is an allusion to the ascension. Luke 9.51. Set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him, verse 52. For when it entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Then verse 53 said the Samaritans did not receive him because he set his face to go to Jerusalem. They hated the Jews. They hated Jerusalem. They thought the Jews had the wrong mountain to be garrisoning. So they wouldn't receive him. Of course, his hometown didn't either. Luke 4, 18 through wherever the end of that chapter is. They didn't receive him. So, what's the response? Luke 9, 54 and 55. Two of the people that were on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when his disciples... James and John saw it. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? There you go. Let's solve the problem. I don't want to see Samaritans. I prefer piles of ashes. Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. He rebuked them. And Luke acts a two-volume work. Later in Acts, John is there. He's one of these. When the Holy Spirit fell upon Samaritans. Even Samaritans will come to Christ. They won't if they're burned up by fire first. So he rebuked them. So they had a dispute about who's the greatest. Now let me show you an amazing irony about this. We're going to jump. We're going to jump to Luke 22. Everything in between reinforces the theme. People with no status are honored by Jesus. 
at banquets with religious leaders. We have the parable of the Good Samaritan. We have the sinner, the lady who came in and wept on Jesus' feet. And they thought, well, this guy can't be a prophet. He would have known how wicked she is and not even let her in. And so this theme is throughout. Then when we get to chapter 22, we have the institution of the Lord's Supper. So let's look at what happens here. In fact, open to Luke 22. I left time for this. If you could go to Luke 22, starting with verse 14, I'll highlight what's going on at the Last Supper. And I believe very that this is very clear that this is another bracketed section. Just like in 1 Corinthians, I exhort you, I exhort you, here, who's the greatest? <laughs> when it comes to not coughing, it's not me. <clears throat> here we go. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Let's look at this. Luke twenty-two fourteen. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Verse 15, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Reminding them he's going to suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's a future promise. We're looking forward to that. Verse 17, and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among you yourselves. Verse 18, for I tell you that from now on, I will not eat of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That hasn't happened yet. We haven't got to the Last Supper. Verse 19, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we have the Lord's Supper, we're remembering this. The new covenant is blood. We're remembering that he made the promise that there is a coming kingdom and we will eat with him there. In the meantime, this argument about status has no place. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. It's the popular song that we sing. Join here with Jesus. That's what we know. The status isn't who's the greatest now, who has done greater things or done built bigger buildings or done whatever we honor, but the one who's just a part, and God determines later the value of the service and rewards accordingly. But we're remembering him. That's verse 19. Now verse 20, 21. Likewise, the cup, after they'd eaten, saying, this cup is that, that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. Turns out to be Judas. Judas is there. He, re, he uh, betrays Jesus. Now, in that context, everything has happened. What do you think we're going to talk about? You guessed it. Who's the greatest? 
Where did that come from? Let's read it. 22 through 24. For the Son of Man, again, Messiah, same title we heard earlier in Luke, goes as it has been determined. Remember? Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah were talking about his exodus, which he's about to accomplish. But woe to the man by whom he's betrayed. Woe to the Judas. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was doing this. Then here's the kicker. The dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be guarded, regarded as the greatest. This demand for honorable status in the eyes of our peers is just stuck there, and it's an enemy of the purposes of God. You could take this and apply it, apply it to church history. How much of church history has been characterized by creating systems that offer status in the eyes of the world, offer status to one Christian vis-a-vis another. I have a better title, better situation, more power, unique giftings, whatever it is, and so the dispute rages on. I want to say to you that as God is gracious and we humbly accept what he said and trust him and be thankful for the gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins and be willing to use our gifts, whatever they are, whether they look important or not, and serve one another, we'll start forgetting status consciousness. And whether it's negative or positive, it doesn't matter. Oh, I'm, I'm worse than everybody else, or I'm better than everybody else. Get it out of your mind. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust him. Be part of the family of God. And just serve. Show up and serve. The Lord will use each one. We don't need to know who's the greatest. That's God's business. And so that is the point of that whole section that we just finished in 1 Corinthians. How hard it is for Christians to lay aside status rivalry. How hard it is. It's almost impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Do you think we can trust God, believe his promises, serve him, care for one another, and let God deal with status when the kingdom shows up later, when the king is here. Because we really don't know. Now, I want to talk about, as we have a few minutes left, something that comes up later in 1 Corinthians. So I'll give you a preview here. I'm preaching from America right now, and there's sure been a lot of... Uh, Raker and political ads, and boy, we—I—I I, I don't know about you, but I feel shell shocked. Just if any of the things left after all the uh, 
really nasty, nasty. Everybody, everybody running is evil, worse than any other evil, whoever it may be. And so here we sit, Christians in a pagan world. And the world has appeared even more pagan all the time. But here's what the issue is. The fact is, the entire human race has the same status coming into this world. And it's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and then also in Romans. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, what do you have to do to be in Adam? Be born through natural generation. It doesn't matter which uh, country, geographical location, language you speak, tribe, people, anywhere, anywhere, place, all in Adam die. All people without Christ are dead sinners. That should solve all of this other debate about who's the greatest, but it doesn't. Now, in Christ means that you're born again, and that's a, a work of God. It's a miracle. All who believe in Christ and trust him alone will humble themselves and repent and say, I can't enhance my own status by who I know, how much I make, who approves of me, what tribe I'm a part of. I can't do a thing. I'm still a dead sinner, and I'm lost and bound for hell. To repent is to turn to Christ and believe in him. And those who are trusting in Christ are those who are regenerated, given new life in Christ. The Gospel of John talks about this. And I think that the big problem in Christian theology and approaches to counseling, sanctification, and everything else, is a failure to give account of this reality. All people are dead sinners. Whether somebody gets a leg up because they were born into a, a apparently good family, or somebody is knocked down because they're born into a bad situation, and everything in between wherever it is and whatever it is, is still dead in Adam. That's the starting point. The way out is through Jesus Christ, God the Son, the only one, the unique one, the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth, born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life without sin, died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. He predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection and pulled it off. He was raised incorruptible, sent it into heaven. That's what Luke Acts is about. And calls all persons to repent and believe the gospel. Trust in him, believe in him, and serve him. You know what's really good about this? If it sinks into our ears, as Jesus said to his disciples, let this sink in to all of our ears. 
the fight over status is useless. It's useless. Why should I fight about I'm more important than some other Christian? Or I'm not uh, as good as somebody else? We shouldn't even think about that stuff. How can God use me? What a miracle. Can God use me? Remember when Ananias was sent to pray for Saul of Tarsus after he's converted? Oh, no, he's probably going to kill me. He's an enemy. No, he's one of mine, the Lord said. Go pray for him. And uh, so it was with me when I showed up in church after I was converted. I'd been the enemy. Look at Romans 5.15. This is the second part of the verse. For if by the transgression of one, the many died. Now, who are those? All the sons and daughters of Adam, the human race. Much more did the gift of grace, did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Now, this isn't talking about universalism. It's talking about the many who believe in him. Whatever your background, however bad it's been, or how seemingly good, whatever it was, if you trust in Christ, the grace of the one man, you're part of the many, receive the grace, believe in him, trust in him. What we all need is the forgiveness of sins. One more slide on this. In Adam, in Christ. Look at the contrast. Now, the, these analogies in the Bible are making a certain point. We can't take them too far. Some people teach universalism, or, or other, that's not true because many don't believe in Christ. But here is the Adam-Christ analogy, the first, the first Adam, the last Adam. In Adam's sin, in Christ's righteousness, Romans 5, 19 and 21. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So that, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What we need is to believe in Christ and have the imputed righteousness of Christ. This has real, substantial, powerful significance even now. Paul will get to that when we get to chapter 5. Well, next week I'll deal with verses 17 through 21, and then in the future we'll go to 5. The significance is this. If we're in Christ, if we trusted in him, we don't want to be like the old Adam. We don't want to be like the world God saved us out of. We truly have a hunger for God to change us even before the resurrection. We want our lives to be different. And I can assure you that that change comes through the means God's ordained, which are accessible with two C's at the beginning, access to all Christians. It's not somebody knows a secret somebody else doesn't know. Somebody else has a better process. It's the means of grace, as we call it, that God will change us 
And part of it is her telling us in the Bible what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false, and giving us a hunger for the true and the right. So so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign to righteousness to eternal life. And dear ones, the basic truths are far more simple than we realize. Most of the complexities and issues arise in church history through lots of different kinds of false teaching. Clear in First Corinthians, we'll get into that. Every conceivable crazy idea somebody promoted as being Christian. So when we teach the Bible to the people of God and allow them to search the scriptures through having the tools, we can avoid those pitfalls. And I truly thank God that I've been allowed to be part of this family and to preach the word to you. And I pray that today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, turn to him, believe in him, and trust him in him. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you that you saved dead sinners and gave us eternal hope. Give us grace not to fall into the trap of comparing ourselves with each other or others, but let us have grace to serve you and to care for one another and trust you to change us in this world until the resurrection comes. We thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen.